I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about whether Gorsuch is a stealth liberal, internet sales tax, and we'll interview Texas Solicitor General Scott Keller. The Supreme Court issued a couple of decisions this week, so we're going to talk about one of them in depth and then another one just briefly. Uh, The the court issued a per curiam opinion in United States versus Microsoft. This is the case looking at whether the federal government could access electronic communications that were stored on Microsoft's uh, data center in Ireland after it had obtained a search warrant pursuant to the 1986 Stored Communications Act. While the case was pending, Congress passed the Cloud Act, which amended the 1986 law and allowed extraterritorial application of search warrants. So both sides in in the case agreed that that had mooted the the action before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court issued an opinion vacating and remanding uh, to the district court with instructions to dismiss the action as moot. So that case has come to an end. Yes, and there's been a lot of hyped-up headlines about Justice Gorsuch in the next case we're going to talk about, Sessions versus DeMaia. Um, I'll read some of my favorite headlines. Uh, first was, the Supreme Court just handed the Trump administration a loss on immigration, and Gorsuch was the tie-breaking vote. Um, and Mark Levin tweeted, Gorsuch blows it big time. <laughs> um, and it's true that Gorsuch did cast the deciding vote in Sessions v. DeMaia, where he voted with the four liberals on the court. But for anyone who paid attention during Gorsuch's confirmation hearing, this is not one bit surprising. His predecessor, Justice Scalia, often voted with the court's liberal bloc on criminal cases, and we knew from Gorsuch's opinions on the Tenth Circuit that he held similar similar views on criminal law. And this was the second time the court has heard this particular case. After Scalia passed away, the court split four to four, so it was re-argued this term. And the issue is whether part of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is a deportation statute, is unconstitutionally vague. So under the void for vagueness doctrine, a court will invalidate a criminal law if it's not sufficiently clear because vagueness runs afoul of due process. So in this case, the INA laid out a series of things that an alien can be deported for. But then it has this residual clause, which is a kind of catch-all that gives prosecutors and judges a lot of power to determine what falls under that. So Gorsuch wrote a separate concurrence because while he agreed with the majority that the law was unconstitutionally vague, the, the residual clause, he didn't quite agree with its reasoning. And Gorsuch wrote that the void for vagueness doctrine, at least properly conceived, serves as a faithful expression of ancient due process and separation of powers principles. And he wrote that the statute leaves judges to their intuitions and the people to their fate, and that the Constitution demands more. So he really went back to first principles and went through the history of of this doctrine. And he started a dialogue about the history with Justice Thomas, who dissented. And I think this is a, a great opinion to look look to about how Supreme Court opinions should read, with both the majority and the dissent trying to go back to first principles and carefully examine history and have a dialogue. And ultimately, it's likely that Justice Scalia would have voted just the same way 
Gorsuch did in this case. And so the outcry that Gorsuch is now going to side with the liberals or is a squish is (laughs) far-fetched and just not true. And people saying that are just not paying attention. Yeah, Neil Gorsuch is not a secret liberal. (laughs) (laughs) So the Supreme Court also heard oral argument in the internet sales tax case this week. That's South Dakota versus Wayfair. And the issue here is whether states can require out-of-state retailers to collect sales tax if they don't have a physical presence, such as a storefront or employees in that state. South Dakota has asked the court to overrule a 1992 decision, Quill Corp versus North Dakota, where the court said that physical presence is a requirement for states to exercise their taxing authority over a retailer. Justice Scalia wrote a concurrence in the Quill case explaining that Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce under the Constitution, and Congress could change or eliminate the physical presence rule at any time if it chose to. Uh, a couple terms ago, Justice Kennedy wrote a concurrence in a case where where Quill came up, suggesting that the court might want to take another look at it and whether it still made sense in light of, quote, the dramatic technological and social changes that have taken place in our increasingly interconnected economy. Kennedy encouraged lawyers to find an appropriate vehicle for the court to take another look at Quill. And that's exactly what happened. South Dakota passed a law directly contradicting Quill's physical presence rule, and the court, uh, the case quickly made its way to the Supreme Court. So at the argument this week, there were a few main issues the justices wanted to know about. The first one was, isn't this a problem that Congress can address? Justice Elena Kagan said, you know, at the Supreme Court, either you're going to have Quill or you're not going to have Quill. But if you go to Congress, Congress can craft compromises and try to figure out how to balance the interests involved here. And Chief Justice John Roberts wanted to know if there's any sort of constitutional minimum, you know, is one sale enough uh, that would, would then bring an out-of-state retailer under the under a state's taxing authority. He seemed to suggest that one sale seemed overly burdensome. Another theme was the impact on small business. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote at the Tenth Circuit that Quill should be overruled, he wrote that in a concurring opinion, he pointed out that brick-and-mortar small businesses have to comply with the rules of the jurisdiction where they operate, so why shouldn't online retailers have to do the same thing? And the, the lawyer for Wayfair answered that borders matter, And he explained that states exercise their sovereignty based upon territorial limits, and that's a key part of horizontal federalism. He also pointed out that the cost of compliance here is up to $250,000 for calculating taxes in the 12,000 or so tax jurisdictions across the country, and that the software that's been developed uh, in the 26 years since Quill um, is full of errors and, and simply can't do all the work. Now, it's worth pointing out that All of the major players like Amazon and other online uh, retailers are already collecting sales tax. So, so really, how this would pan out is it's going to uh, it's going to be problematic for small businesses. But I thought most notably in in the oral argument, even though it was Justice Kennedy who had asked for this case in the first place, he was relatively silent during the argument, only making a couple of points, uh, which were mainly just to point out that the assumption of many of the questions was that Quill was wrong, and the court was just trying to figure out where to go from there. So we expect a decision by the end of June in this case. Yes, I can't wait to learn the fate of my internet purchases. (laughs) So we recently spoke with Scott Keller. Scott Keller is the Solicitor General of Texas. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Scott. Great to be here. Thank you. So you've argued some big cases at the Supreme Court on behalf of Texas. I think you said this is your argument next week will be your 11th argument. So which one is the most memorable? Well, anytime you get 
uh, to argue in front of the Supreme Court. Of course, it's going to be memorable. Uh, but we've had a lot of big cases in the state of Texas in the last few years. Uh, you know, the, the one I think that probably garnered the most national attention was the United States versus Texas case about the Obama administration's uh, immigration program. That was certainly a big case. But we also had, you know, our, our specialty license plate case, <laughs> uh, which was the second case I had the opportunity to argue. Uh, the Walker versus Texas uh, Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the Confederate license plate case. So I mean, I could go down the list of, of, of the cases, but we've had a, a fantastic uh, slate of cases in the state, and I obviously could not do this job without a fantastic team. Uh, we have an, an office of 18 lawyers and a dozen support staff, and so we're really almost a litigation boutique uh, in ourselves. Yeah. And, and to be able to, you know, I guess bring that firepower, intellectual horsepower uh to the practice of law, I think it is a great development for the state of Texas. And Texas has taken the lead in various multi-state litigation. So what's it like working with the other states and other state SGs? Yeah, the various states have excellent working relationships, and there's not a, a necessarily like a set formal process for how states will necessarily do a lawsuit together, or even join in an amicus brief together. It's more kind of behind the scenes, just communication among higher level officials in state AG's offices, among state SG's. And from that, there's a kind of back and forth of, well, you know, we, we did this one this time, so next time you all get it. Or, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of resources being devoted to this lawsuit, and here maybe this isn't the best time for us to, to lead. And, and there's kind of this give and take behind the scenes, and, and it all seems to work out somehow. Is the give and take mostly on, like, subject matter or mostly, like, bandwidth? Like, if you like, I'm really interested in this issue, I'd like to take the lead, or is it more just a we have time to take this and... So we'll do it. It's going to be a little of both. I mean, the priorities of each individual office are going to be set by the attorney general of that particular state. Given that attorney general's preferences, that state may choose to focus its resources on certain cases and want to be out there leading on certain cases. But that doesn't by any means say that they won't join in other lawsuits or amicus briefs that aren't that particular topic. But I think it's kind of a mixture. It's obviously going to be what are the priorities of a particular attorney general? And also, what are the resources of the office? In Texas, we're very lucky that we have a large SG's office that is still specialized in that we direct the resources of the office to the most precedent setting, the highest profile cases. Not many offices can say that they have a sizable SG office like that. In New York, for instance, they have, I think, 50-plus people in their SG's office, but wow. they do all the appeals, though, for the state. Whereas in Texas, our SG's office is only doing a fraction of the appeals, which is mm -hmm. the highest profile and the, the biggest cases that we see. So you've argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the Texas Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit. What's each experience like, and do you have a favorite court? <laughs> Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I will tell you, there are different experiences. The U.S. Supreme Court, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is a very fast-paced, hot bench uh, of questioners. I think someone calculated, this was a couple terms ago on the internet, they went through and they all the transcripts at the Supreme Court, and they counted up the number of times a particular advocate was starting a new answer at the court for that entire term. I don't know who had the time to do this. Uh, but I found it interesting because I figured out what 
my number was. And then I knew how many minutes I'd been at the podium that term. So I went back and calculated and I was starting a new answer in the Supreme Court that term once every 30 seconds, <laughs> which is sounds a right. really fast pace. And if you assume, I don't know if this is a good assumption, but if you assume that justices are talking for half the time and the advocates talking for half the time, well, that would mean I would have been starting a response talking for 15 seconds, then a justice was talking for 15 seconds, and I was talking for 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. That pace of questioning is, is rapid. Contrast that, for instance, with the Texas Supreme Court. Um, if any of your listeners go pull up a, a live video streamed argument of the Texas Supreme Court, which they do, <laughs> the pace of questioning there is a lot slower um, and it's probably more reminiscent of the historical, you know, three, four decades ago, U.S. Supreme Court questioning. Uh, and in the Fifth Circuit, it being, you know, three judge panels for the most part is going to be somewhere in between. So uh, you still prep for the arguments the same and you're trying to anticipate all of the hardest questions you could be asked. But the actual day of experience is pretty different. So do you have any pre-argument rituals? <laughs> I've had a lot of people tell me I should uh, get some more, maybe come in with the you know wireless Bose headphones, but no, <laughs> I don't, unfortunately. Um, I, I guess the one thing I, I would do before oral argument is actually eat breakfast. I'm not a big breakfast person otherwise. <laughs> is it four bananas? <laughs> like, we've heard some other advocates. Oh, yeah? Eat a no. lot of bananas. Yeah. yeah. We no, hear they're no. good. Yeah. Good prep for That's oral for argument. potassium. No, I usually go for protein. It's more like, you know, eggs, bacon, ham. That sounds like a good breakfast. I like it. Yeah. And <laughs> maybe some Chick-fil-A. Uh, <laughs> so before heading down to Texas, you served as Senator Ted Cruz's chief counsel. What can you tell us about your role in his office? Yeah, that was a that was such an interesting time to be joining the senator as he was just coming into office. So this was before all of the, the, the presidential run. And he had been selected to serve on the Judiciary Committee, the committee that obviously vets potential uh, nominees to the federal bench and, and other uh, executive appointments. And so my role was chief counsel for the senator on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, so anytime there was a hearing, anytime there was a, a business meeting of the Judiciary Committee, I was there advising the senator, uh, you know, having talking points drafted up, although he, he's, he is an incredible public speaker and <laughs> almost always knew what his messaging needed to be ahead of time. So yeah. <laughs> uh, in that sense, I, I'm not sure there was a ton of value added uh, all the time from our point of view from the staff, but we, we would, we would prep him for hearings and give him, you know, voluminous materials that then he'd be able to, for instance, cross-examine a particular witness at a hearing, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very valuable skill as you all know, in watching Senate hearings or house hearings to have. So, so that was one aspect of the job. The other aspect of the job was I think in some ways I ended up f really kind of functioning as a kind of general counsel mm -hmm. for the whole office. You know, so if there was like a, a legal issue that touched on foreign affairs, I'd be looped in on that. If there were, was a, a particular legal issue in the news, uh, I'd be looped in with the communication staff. So I really got kind of a grab bag of experiences and kind of got to see all the various facets of, you know, what it was kind of like to be a hard charging Senate office day in, day out. That's great. Can you tell us any funny stories about the Senator? <laughs> well, there, there are plenty, but let's see what, what, which ones could, well, one thing I would say is he has a fantastic sense of humor. <laughs> and I remember many times we'd be sitting in kind of big staff meetings 
we'd all pile in his office, give him the, the weekly update or, or, or whatever uh, we were talking about at the time. And it'd be right in the middle of someone talking, you know, about a, you know, a particular bill that needed to un, you know, understand facets of it and everything. And all of a sudden, the senator would just kind of snap out and be like, hey, did you see that YouTube clip? <laughs> and the next thing you know, the whole staff, we were watching some funny YouTube clip and, and, and yucking it up about that. But no, I mean, the senator is, he, he was a, he was a tremendous boss and you know, he worked hard. We worked hard, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> I guess there was a time for working hard. And there was also a time to kind of lay back, not take yourself so seriously and inject <laughs> a little humor into the situation. So Senator Cruz previously served as the solicitor general of Texas, uh, did that uh, previous relationship uh, contribute to your your decision to take that job? To take the, uh, to become SG. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, the job of Solicitor General of Texas is is one that I mean it it is a tremendous honor. And I remember when I was in law school, I actually uh, interned or clerked at the Texas SG's office when the senator was SG. Uh, he was one of my recommenders for clerkships. He was an adjunct professor of mine when I was at University of Texas Law School. And so, you know, when lightning struck years later and the <laughs> senator became a senator, uh, you can't plan on that, obviously. Uh, but I was thrilled to be able to, to come to Washington and, and serve as his first chief counsel. Then when Attorney General Paxton got elected and... Uh, his staff and the general made me the offer to uh, go back to Texas and serve as solicitor general. I mean, I was, I was beyond thrilled and <laughs> it's an honor to stand up at the podium on behalf of 28 million Texans each day uh, and, and continue the, the excellent advocacy and the representation that that office brings for Texas. But all of that started from you know, the first Solicitor General of Texas, the late Greg Coleman, one of my mentors, and then obviously Senator Ted Cruz, Judge Jim Ho, Jonathan Mitchell, uh, Julie Parsons. I mean, the, my predecessors have really set up the office to be what it is today. And I've been the beneficiary of the hard work that they put in to, to raise the profile of the office. Uh, and so from my experience with Senator Cruz, uh, you know, to be able to step into a role like that. I mean, that, that's a, that is, I want, I tell people I went from one dream job <laughs> to another dream job and I, it's every day I pinch myself going into work. Well, you've definitely continued, uh, the legacy of their great work, uh, with, with your, your role as SG. So which do you like better, Texas or DC? <laughs> <laughs> Texas. Uh, more questions like that. <laughs> Early in your career, you were a Bristow Fellow in the U.S. Solicitor General's Office. Can you tell us a little bit about that fellowship? Yeah, the U.S. Solicitor General's Office within the U.S. Department of Justice has a great program where they will give one-year fellowships to younger lawyers. Usually they're right out of, say, one year of a clerkship, so they're about one year out of law school, and they get to come in and work in the U.S. Solicitor General's Office, and they write uh, drafts of briefs in opposition to cert certiorari, not, not in the biggest cases, but, you know, largely in criminal cases that the USSG's office has a very, uh, they have a repeat diet of all sorts of different assert petitions and criminal cases. And then in addition to that, uh, helping with the appeal memo process within the USSG's office, which is when the litigating divisions are recommending to the Solicitor General whether to appeal, when to appeal, what that should look like, what kind of arguments are being made. 
And then in addition to that, just kind of a, a smorgasbord of different random projects that could arise depending on if assistant SGs need help with research or, you know, drafting portions of briefs. And the USSG's office is so well credentialed in its lawyers and it's a really, really tough job to get. And so the fact that the Bristow Fellowship exists, as a young lawyer, you get to see the inner working of an office like that, which is fascinating. And some of the lessons that I learned in that job when I was seeing how the U.S. Solicitor General's office functioned, I've kind of tried to go back and repeat in our Texas Solicitor General's office to make that better. In fact, we now have a fellowship program, which we tried to model based on the Bristow Fellowship, which we call the Coleman Fellowship after our first Solicitor General, uh, Greg Coleman. And, and so trying to get experiences for younger lawyers and, and mentoring younger lawyers, I think not only is it a priority for the U.S. Solicitor General's office, it's certainly a priority for our office too. And there was a change in administration during your fellowship. So what was it like going from the Bush administration with Greg Garr heading up the office to Elena Kagan in the Obama administration? Yeah, that was an interesting time to be at the Department <laughs> of Justice. Bet. So I was, for the Bristow Fellowship, I was hired by Paul Clement. I started when Greg Garr was Solicitor General. Then Neil Kotyal came in and was the acting Solicitor General pending now Justice Elena Kagan's confirmation, then Elena Kagan was the Solicitor General. So I suppose there were kind of four Solicitors General in <laughs> the, the span of my uh, Bristow time. But I'll say the, the U.S. Solicitor General's office, it's, it, it is very sustainable, even, even through a transition. And it, obviously that was a transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, switching you know, political parties of the presidency. Even then, I mean, the trains were all running. And the lawyers of that office are dedicated to the rule of law. And while there are going to be certain positions that are going to be changing legal positions, taking from administration to administration, uh, you know, the, the, as far as the day to day of the office when in, in the work, I'm not sure there was a palpable difference, uh, certainly from, you know, a Bristow fellows perspective. Sure. So you clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy. What can you tell us about working for him? That was a a wonderful year, and I will be forever grateful that I had the opportunity given to me by Justice Kennedy to, to clerk at the Supreme Court. He, uh, you know, one of the amazing things about that clerkship is, is he loves to talk through cases with his clerks. So rather than writing, you know, tens of pages of memos. Rather, all of us clerks had a lot of FaceTime and, and talking time with the justice, which I think made that clerkship a, a real, a, a special year to uh, not only see how Justice Kennedy approaches the law, but also just to, to, to figure out you know, all, the, all the workings of the court. When, when you get there as a clerk at first, it's, it's quite overwhelming uh, and, and having more exposure to uh, to your justice that you're clerking for earlier, I think that kind of was, it was a boost to all of us and my co-clerks. Is there something uh, you could tell us about the justice that our listeners may not know about him? Something you might not know about him. Man, ah, <laughs> that's, that's tough. I mean, a lot has been uh, written and, and said about justice. Can I will say he, he was a, fantastic boss. I remember when my parents uh, came to town during my clerkship year, 
he, and he's a very, very busy uh, person like all of the justices. But I remember he, he took 45 minutes out of his day and, and took my family into his office and just talked to them. He wanted to know about them. He wanted to know, you know, where was my dad from? Where was my mom from? Where was, you know, and I remember there was one particular time where he, uh, he, was, he started to show some of the items in his office uh, to uh, my family and just kind of, you could tell the excitement. He was just excited <laughs> to kind of share his, his American experience. Like he, he, he knows that he serving as a Supreme court justice, just what a, you know, a, the gravity of that role. Mm-hmm. And, and I think whether it's through little experiences like that of, you know, talking to a clerk's family or talking to law students and wanting to be out there and wanting to, you know, impart the uh, project that our founders gave us. I, I really do think that is one of Justice Kennedy's legacies. So Justice Gorsuch has Leroy the Elk in his office. <laughs> and we've heard that Justice Alito has a pair of flamingos that he brought with him from the Third Circuit. Does Justice Kennedy have anything whimsical or silly in his chambers? <laughs> okay. So the answer to that question is yes. And this is this is a good story because it involves my clerk crew. My year when we were clerking, I don't remember how this happened, but the chief justice's clerks ended up challenging us, the Justice Kennedy clerks, to a game of sand volleyball. I mean, it'd be <laughs> beach volleyball, but there aren't beaches here in Washington, D.C. Uh, so after, you know, a few practices, we all showed up a uh, day of, and I'm proud to report that Justice Kennedy's clerks uh, won that match three games to one. <laughs> wow. And that, we thought the fun was over, but it wasn't because then the next week, the chief justice and his staff came up to Justice Kennedy's chambers and they presented Justice Kennedy and Justice Kennedy's clerks with a little uh, token of our victory. <laughs> and that token is a little trophy and it has a volleyball on the head of a volleyball player and the volleyball itself is a bobblehead. So it's a bobblehead <laughs> trophy. And Justice Kennedy proudly displays that in his office to this day. That's, That's great. great. So we have one final question that we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Oh, man. All sorts of different ways to go on that one. For me, I would pick uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. I unfortunately never had the opportunity to meet Chief Justice Rehnquist. And uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was a – his background to me – Given some of the parallels of where I've come from, I thought it would have just been fascinating to see how he got to where he did. He grew up in Wisconsin like I did. Uh, when he returned from the war, he moved to a much warmer climate, <laughs> him to Arizona. I moved down to Texas. Uh, and his jurisprudence, too, I mean, he, uh, he was paving the way for a lot of the doctrines that we see today from the Supreme Court. Uh, he was obviously famously known as the lone dissenter at times. And then the lone dissenter started picking up a few votes. And the next thing you know, you had the Rehnquist court with a federalism revival. And Justice Scalia was uh, a, a, a heralded jurist, and he deserves every bit of that. But before there was Justice Scalia, there was Chief Justice Rehnquist. And I just love to kind of hear about his his time on the court, how how his past 
his upbringing in particular in Wisconsin influenced him. Uh, and yeah, I would, I would have loved to have met him. It sounds like that, that would have been some great conversations to have. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Kennedy slash Texas edition. <laughs> a little bit of Kennedy, a little bit of Texas. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. Okay. First question. How many Supreme Court justices have hailed from Texas? And bonus, if you know the name or names. Oof. I mean, there was Justice Clark. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. That's it. It's the only one. <laughs> Tom, Tom Campbell Clark, who was appointed by President Truman in 1949. Next question. Justice Kennedy, we've heard, has a crystal ashtray in his chambers with someone else's initials on it. Do you know who it once belonged to? Oh, I should, but I don't. This question came from John Elwood, so you can blame him. <laughs> it belonged to his father, whose initials were AJK instead of AMK. Next up. Who was the best man at the wedding of Justice Kennedy's parents? Is this another John Elwood question? I, this one may <laughs> I, I, do not, I do not know the answer to that. It was Roger Trainer. The, he was later oh, the yeah. Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. Huh. That one may have come from, from Orrin Kerr. So. Uh, the Kennedy Clerk family, they're reaching back on this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we've had a lot of Kennedy Clerks, uh, so we're, we're kind of running out of <laughs> trivia. Um, next question. People know him as AMK, but what does the M in Anthony M. Kennedy stand for? Ah, McLeod. Yes, and that was his mother's maiden name. Well done. Okay. Final question. What is the sweet mystery of life? <laughs> we're, we're just kidding. You don't have to answer. This is a trick question because only Justice Kennedy knows. And, of course, this comes from the 1992 Casey decision where he wrote, or he's alleged to have wrote, it was plurality. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Well, I'll tell you, as a Supreme Court advocate, uh, you know as an advocate that you make the arguments that are on the table to the justices, and the justices can interpret their own words for them. Uh, <laughs> and when you get to five votes and they issue an opinion and ruling in your favor, you celebrate that. <laughs> well, I think um, there's an old country song that says the— that lays out the sweet mystery of life. It says it's faster horses, younger women, older whiskey, and more money. I think he's, it's Tom T. Hall. I think, I think he might be from Texas. So it's going to go with that. <laughs> well, I think you did a great job. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.